at least three things have to come together to give developers something they can build on. One is the underlying technologies have to get good enough. So you have to have fast enough CPUs and good enough network connections. Then you have to have the core low-level implementations that take advantage of those advances. And then user expectations have to start to shift. It seems pretty clear to me that we're at the tipping point where the standards ecosystem is going to outpace everything else. So I think the whole world is moving toward WebRTC. I'm Matt, the organizer of the SF Video Technology Meetup and the Demux Conference. And I'm Steve, creator of VideoJS, the open source video player. And I'm Phil, streaming specialist at Mux in London and organizer of the London Video Technology Meetup. And you're listening to Demuxed, a podcast for and by engineers working with video. Demuxed is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. We're always looking for topics, so if you have any suggestions or just want to tell us how wrong we are, you can find us on Twitter at Demuxed. Hey everyone, we're back. We have the whole gang back together. It feels like it's been forever, even though it's actually just been one episode that it wasn't all three of us. Uh, <laughs> and this time we're back with a guest. So the last two shows, we just did the three of us talking about low latency and the two of us in the last one. Yeah, and this time we have our, our friend from the industry, from YC, from just the world, Quindla from Daily, daily.co if you're curious about domain names. So I wanted to talk real quick before we get started. Demuxed, um, so by the time this is released, speaker submission should be closed. The panel should be starting to work on talk selection, all that sort of stuff. But it's the last week of October, that Tuesday through Thursday, the 27th through 29th. Just a reminder, when you buy your ticket, you have a chance to just buy a normal ticket or a ticket with a swag box if you want the t-shirt and all that sort of stuff. We're going to try to ship to anywhere that asks for it, but we can't ship a t-shirt and badge for $80 to Timbuktu. That's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> a third of all uh, ticket revenue goes to causes that help support diversity and inclusion in technology and the world, but primarily in our tech industry. If you donate anything over the base ticket price, anything above that goes straight to the donation pile. So just a reminder. And also, we're doing donation matching up to $3,000 if you want to just donate outside the ticket or before. We're going to donate those as soon as we kind of hit that mark. So let us know. You can kind of donate to any DNI inclusive social justice yeah, social justice group that you like. Um, we'll donate to Just Dev Color and the ACLU but we'll match whatever social justice initiative you want to donate to. Okay, so we're, we're here today to talk about real-time. So we had these two episodes on kind of the world of low latency and what that looks like and the different gradients of low latency in the world and ending with kind of this deep dive into what Apple's new low latency HLS spec looks like. The question we get a lot is kind of what does the real-time world look like? So so today, I thought it'd be great to talk about real-time video as kind of a, a follow-up to kind of this pushing the bounds of lower latency, and then going fully into that real-time side of the latency spectrum that we talked about in the last calls. So to talk about that, we, we brought in our friend Quindla from Daily. We, we went through YC with him way back in 2016. So Quinn, do you want to give us a little bit of background about Daily and what, what y'all do? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's it's really fun to be on with you. I'm Quindle Holtman Kramer. I'm co-founder of a company called Daily. We make APIs for real-time interactive video. We uh, have been working on video for a long time, uh, individually and collectively as a team. Um, I've been interested in 
uh, large-scale real-time networks and, and video since I was in graduate school. The genesis of daily is the idea that live video is going to be more and more a part of our lives in everything we all do online. And a standard called WebRTC, which a number of browser manufacturers and other platform folks have been working on for several years, is going to help make that happen. So we started daily to build a technology stack on top of WebRTC that could serve as many use cases as possible. Um, Our users are doing things like video calls, but also customer support, uh, retail, telehealth, and some interesting new use cases around future work, like uh, always-on video desktops for distributed teams and experimental uh, educational stuff like fitness classes. I I saw one of those products the other day, uh, actually, I can't remember what it's called. Is a I can't remember if it's a Kickstarter or something like that. But I kind of guess iPad that you just it's on stand. You put it aside of your desk and you flick it on in the morning, and all your teammates are just there. Slightly terrifying to me, but uh. <laughs> I think there's so much interesting experimentation, and some of those tools are really going to stick in maybe the same way that Slack, for example, really changed a lot of our assumptions about how we work together. Absolutely. So, in the last two episodes, we really focused in on this low latency and ultra low latency and I heard I heard words the other day hyper low latency it's a new one for me oh no please no (laughs) I know right and maybe just to rescope a little bit on where that line is drawn where things become kind of real time video so all the stuff we talked about in the last couple of episodes you know best case that's going to get you down to what a second maybe maybe half a second at some level of scale and obviously, real time is a lot lower than a second, right? This is something where the latency is not disruptive to human interaction. So we're talking about, you know, sub 100 milliseconds of latency, realistically, for a great experience. Yeah, even at 300 milliseconds, you start to get that that back and forth, like you're having a long distance international phone call and you start talking over each other, so... There is actually a pretty wide gap between like a good real-time interactive experience and where we can get to with the traditional live streaming technologies. Well, this is probably a great place for you to chime in, Quint. Um, what do you typically see as kind of that threshold for acceptable in the real-time world? I imagine it's almost even smaller for what's acceptable there, but what do you see? Yeah, the deep background of the technologies we build on top of is the voice over IP stack that your listeners here are probably familiar with from originally moving phone calls, business phone calls to to digital networks. And the traditional VoIP world definition of acceptable latency is 250 milliseconds or less. As you were saying, though, you really want to be down closer to 100 milliseconds if you possibly can be. But you can't beat the speed of light. So if you're talking to people halfway around the world, it's a little tough to be at 100 milliseconds. Mm. We, some of our users use satellite links. Those are more like 600 milliseconds. <laughs> and there are always buffers if you're encoding video. Video is harder than voice in terms of real time. And so with video buffers in the mix, we feel like we're doing okay. If we're at 200 milliseconds or so, we want to be better. But 200 milliseconds is sort of what we aim for. Mm. Yeah, that, that pesky speed of light issue. <laughs> <laughs> Gets me every time, every time. So we, we already kind of started talking about this a little bit here, but I, I thought it'd be nice to kind of touch on like how is this technologically different from traditional live streaming? So how is real time different from what we see in traditional live streaming? Whether or not it's low latency, 
I thought it'd be kind of nice to dig in there a little bit. So could you, uh, you, you kind of touched on this VoIP foundation that, that's being built on, but can you tell us a little about the technology history behind all of this? Sure. So digital video and audio have been research areas for a long time. I, I built a bunch of uh, experimental video stuff in graduate school in the 90s, but it really became a, a widespread technology as business telephone systems and other kinds of commercial audio systems started to need to route over digital networks. And the industry developed around VoIP or voice over IP. So if you've used a, a phone system at a big company in the last 20 years, you've used some kind of VoIP technology. And then, of course, cell phone networks became digital. And then in 2010, 2011, Google started to get serious about thinking about what should get embedded in web browsers for uh, digital audio and video that could be real-time, could be used for interactive applications like video calls, and started to work on a, a specification that eventually became known as WebRTC. Mozilla Foundation got on board with Firefox. And Google and Mozilla in 2012, 2013, 2014 timeframe started to build really cool new stuff into web browsers. And WebRTC became a, a standards effort. And a bunch of other companies started to contribute to the WebRTC effort. And if you fast forward to today, the set of standards called WebRTC is now built into web browsers and mobile platforms. And it's something that developers can build directly on top of to build really low latency and interactive audio and video. So how much of that is just the same technology that's been used for VoIP and how much of it is actually pretty new? It's a, a mixed bag. I mean, all of the core pieces have been around for a long time, but how they get put together and how they get implemented in the browser and things like JavaScript APIs are all really new and, in fact, are all really still kind of unstable. We're figuring this stuff out as we go along. Um, <laughs> every major release of the browsers uh, tends to cause various kind of issues, uh, sometimes major, sometimes minor. And it still feels like we're at the early days of scaling and making this stuff really easy for developers. But it is super exciting now that we've kind of crossed this bridge to now having a standard that you can build on cross-platform for live, interactive video and audio. Yeah, yeah. I was having this conversation with Matt just uh, two days ago about how WebRTC, when you're playing with and experimenting with it right now, feels... Like HTML5 video did, you know, six, seven, eight years ago in the browser and media source extensions in particular, it feels like it's at that stage of incubation or maturity in comparison to, yeah, where the technologies you use when you're delivering HLS or Dash to a browser, just that chunk more mature right now, in, in particular from a compatibility perspective. It's so yeah. true. I mean, I have three different computers on my desk for testing. And I <laughs> don't think that, you know, that was true when we were building websites in 1999. And it's uh, <laughs> not been true for a while. But with the WebRTC stuff, it definitely is true. Yeah, the, the kicker I think that always gets me is, is having to jump back into like nine different vendor prefixes. Mm. <laughs> like sometimes there's different vendor prefixes within a vendor, which is kind of wild. But something that you kind of alluded to a little bit in there that, that was it's really interesting to me is that it feels like this was another thing that got really impacted by the death of browser plugins. Mm. Things like Flash and Real Player. Uh, Real Play. Uh, I don't know if that one did real time. But my point is like I, I think this was a niche that was kind of filled by those plugins. 
And then there was like the dead area after all of those kind of died for a little while. I hadn't really thought about that relationship, but it's it's kind of obvious in retrospect, I suppose. The way we talk about it is at least three things have to come together to give developers a, a something they can build on in lots of interesting ways. And and you know, we, we see a bunch of new applications start to come. Uh, one is the underlying technologies have to get good enough. So you have to have fast enough CPUs and good enough network connections available for everybody. Then you have to have the the core low level implementations that take advantage of those you know CPU and network connection advances, and then user expectations have to start to shift. So, you know, when I started building live video stuff and I would demo the things we were building, people would say, "Oh yeah, that's really cool," but I'm never going to turn my camera on in a video call. <laughs> <laughs> Little do they know what was going to happen. <laughs> It's really funny to see how things change, and we don't even remember. You know, you cross the, you cross over that boundary, and you know, you don't even remember how different things were. One of the parallels we try to draw is how payments are now ubiquitous on the internet. But mm. I mean, I'm certainly old enough to remember when lots of people said there were never going to be, you know, users were never going to trust the internet with their credit card number. Mm. Oh yeah. So user expectations really matter, and as you start to build that flywheel of underlying core sort of speeds and feeds type tech and then implementation level building blocks that developers can use and things that users are interested in doing and excited to do and willing to do, you get all sorts of new use cases in a kind of Cambrian explosion. And I, I do think that's the early stage of what we're seeing now with interactive videos. All those things have come together. There's a whole lot of experimentation. Things are still a little bit hard to build and scale, but there's so much interesting stuff going on. So I'm curious to hear, because we, we've talked a lot about this has been a really browser-centric conversation so far. Obviously, that's you know that's the platform these days. Let's be honest with ourselves. But I'd be curious what the the rest of the landscape looks like, and and do y'all dive much into that, or, or are you really able to kind of stay almost entirely in the browser platform world and be as ubiquitous as daily is? We focused on the browser early on because partly with Google's big efforts in this new standard, the browsers were ahead of mobile platforms. And it was pretty tough to build a mobile app that could do really good quality audio and video at extremely low latency. That started to change in just the last year. So we are starting to put a lot more work into mobile. We have some new releases coming up. And we think you pretty much have to because as things get more ubiquitous, as use cases evolve, you know, mobile's 50, 60, 70, 80, 90% of the computing that most people do. Mm. So mobile is catching up. It's pretty close to being a completely viable platform now. And has that changed? Obviously, I did I see stuff at WWDC, right? More WebRTC components coming to like iOS, if memory serves? Yeah, that's exactly right. So mobile Safari is now pretty good. Nice. And uh, Apple is supporting some, some stuff lower level than Safari, but we're still at the point where, as a developer, you can use JavaScript APIs in the browser, but if you want to build a native mobile app, you need to go down to the level where you're actually maintaining some of the core library stuff yourself. And that will change, and we can make that easier for users, but the mobile development path is is still quite a bit more challenging than the browser side stuff. Yeah, I guess that kind of plays into what I'm super interested in, which is, how does real-time communication, real-time video market just, is everything now just WebRTC? If I'm using Zoom, is it WebRTC? Or are people still doing more weird and innovative ways of shuffling around real-time video? 
The short answer is everything except Zoom is WebRTC. And <laughs> Zoom did this amazing job building a proprietary video stack and great native applications that could leverage you know, their proprietary stack. And they had to do that in terms of when they were launching and scaling because WebRTC just wasn't ready on any level uh, for what they were trying to do. As WebRTC has gotten better, almost everybody else has shifted to using WebRTC often in experimental ways, sometimes hacking up and modifying what the low-level implementation is doing. But it it seems pretty clear to me, I'm, I'm just one opinion, but it seems pretty clear to me that we're at the tipping point where the standards ecosystem is going to outpace everything else hmm. in terms of both performance for core use cases and the ability to support all the interesting long-tail edge case use cases. There's going to be another generation of the WebRTC spec that kind of deconstructs uh, some of the core primitives to support more experimentation mm. and more use cases. Uh, that'll take you know that'll take a year or two or three to start having an impact, but but it's already being worked on. So I think the whole world is moving toward WebRTC and investing in and contributing to WebRTC at this point. Kind of on that note, I want you to know like how much room is there for like tweaking the algorithm of the streaming algorithm of WebRTC, you know, as it's determining, you know, what quality to send and, and uh, details like that. Like are people modifying WebRTC at that level or do you just kind of trust the, that the browser is doing smart things? It depends on what you're doing for what I would say normal use cases are, and normal is a moving target. Uh, but for normal use cases, you're trusting the browser for a bunch of reasons. A lot of stuff really has to get done at the you know C++ level to work. So the video encoding, echo cancellation, uh, lots of stuff you folks are really familiar with just really has to be done below the level of JavaScript. So you, if you're not trusting the browser, then you, you kind of can't work within the browser. What you can do if you have a use case that isn't well supported by kind of today's standard WebRTC is you can either work at the C++ level yourself, which has more knobs you can turn, or you can hack on the open source libwebrtc code base that is the, the basis for most of the WebRTC implementations. Both of those are really doable, and people are doing both of those things. It does mean you have to have a native application or an Electron application, for example, you no longer are compatible with uh, the browsers. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you can work really hard to be compatible, you know, cross-compatible. Like y- your users in the browsers have a certain experience that's got guardrails on it, and then your users with your native application can do more. But that's twice as much work, at least. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's interesting because that's one of the like the differences that you know you can call out between RTMP and WebRTC is like RTMP you have maybe a little bit more control like if you really want to send a high quality stream as much as possible and you're less concerned about necessarily the the latency right like you might choose RTMP because you can send that higher quality stream whereas WebRTC i get the impression you tend to have a little bit less control over that that's totally right and that's one of the really interesting trade-offs that when I think when developers come to you and they come to us, they ask for things like low latency and high quality. But the actual trade-offs there are really subtle and really interesting often. WebRTC is really biased towards low latency at the expense of quality. So keeping the media flowing. Mm-hmm. To a first approximation, you know, the big difference is UDP versus TCP. Um, so we lose a lot of packets when we send them uh, on a lot of networks. <laughs> and so 
we don't always have time to resend those packets. We certainly don't have time to run multiple encoder passes. Mm. Um, so we're never going to be able to send video at the same quality that you could send video at if you're willing to tolerate you know, 15, 20, 30 second latency. But we can push the latency down by building lots of kind of robustness to packet loss and other things into the system. Um, but it is a real trade-off and you have to kind of decide what you're going to optimize for. So... One of the things we see a lot of, or has seen bits and bobs of, is abuse of WebRTC. Spec is probably the wrong way to phrase it. It's we see a lot of people being creative with WebRTC spec, using the the file transfer mode and moving around bits of video for ultra low latency for close to real time streaming. From a, a real-time communication standpoint, I assume that's like a, a no-go area where you need that traditional interactivity. Would that be fair to say? So I think you're talking about WebRTC data channels. I am, um, yes. Yeah. So uh, a little bit of background. In the WebRTC spec, there are media channels and data channels. And the media channels were designed to know enough, to have enough, uh, kind of high enough abstraction level that you can assume that media you're sending through the media channels has things like forward error correction, mm. uh, can do resends on missing packets, uh, you can re-request keyframes. The media channels are built on top of RTP. The data channels are just sort of catch-as-catch-can, we're going to send a bunch of packets out over whatever the underlying transport is. It's probably <laughs> UDP, but you don't really know. And with none of the none of the sort of higher level stuff that's super useful for media. So if you're sending media over the data channels, then you're either doing something wrong or you're pushing the boundaries of what the spec <laughs> can actually support. And Why not both? Yeah, you can, I mean, <laughs> opinions differ, right? Like engineers uh, playing with trade-offs are, are going to do interesting things. The need to control things in different ways than the media channels give you access to, though, is one of the drivers of the WebRTC next generation spec. And separating out the encoding and bandwidth adaptation and other layers that are in the media channels that you don't have as much control over into elements of a pipeline that you do have control over is definitely something that the standards body is is aware that people want to do. Oh no, it's super cool, it's great. I think it's sort of fun to talk about Zoom's amazing hack, which is uh, their in-browser client, which as you say, uses WebRTC, but not really WebRTC. <laughs> Zoom cross-compiled into WebAssembly a bunch of their proprietary encoding and decoding and networking stack. And they use WebRTC data channels and a bunch of WebAssembly to implement Zoom in the browser. It's an amazing and really cool hack. It's probably not something that can scale the way a more native WebRTC implementation can, and certainly can't scale the way their native application can. But it's an interesting experiment exactly along the lines you're talking about. They're, they're sort of pushing the boundaries of two technologies, WebAssembly and WebRTC, to do something that you can't do with sort of core WebRTC. I was corrected the other day because I, I thought that they were using WebRTC. Well, I guess quasi-corrected. I thought they were using WebRTC and that's how they were in the browser. And then I was corrected and somebody was like, no, they're actually using WebSockets. And apparently they used to use WebSockets in the browser and the WebRTC transition is, is relatively recent, which honestly that whole thing kind of blew my mind a little bit. But it is interesting that WebRTC has gotten so ubiquitous in this industry that I was shocked to hear that somebody wasn't using it, especially as big of a player as Zoom. Mm. Well, they have a bunch of great stuff they've built that just isn't available at the JavaScript level. So they they had to pick some different 
point in the trade-off matrix. And as you're saying with the WebSockets versus data channels decision, there's a whole discussion about what WebSockets are and aren't good at and what data channels are and aren't good at. And it, it does... Uh, it does cause us to to pull our hair out because we we work with both every day, and uh, we've done some similar things of going back and forth between using WebSockets for some things and using data channels for some things, especially on what we call the signaling side. So when when WebRTC people talk about signaling, what they mean is all of the stuff that's not media in a call. So how do you set up the call? How do you figure out how to talk to other people in the call? How do you keep track of state in the call, like who's muted and who's not? That stuff is actually explicitly not in the WebRTC spec. It's for developers to decide for themselves because use cases vary so much. So one of the first challenges you encounter if you sort of pick up the WebRTC APIs as a developer is, oh, this is really cool stuff. It solves a lot of really hard, heavy lift problems with like media delivery. But how do I actually get people on a call together in the first place? And then how do I know who's muted and who's not muted or who, you know, who has a chat message they want to send? Mm. So on the on the topic of all this latency, I'd be curious to hear where it actually comes from. Like in low latency video and in, in our world, typically that's in the transcoding step or propagating out the CDNs or any myriad of places kind of in between there from glass to glass. What does that look like specifically for real-time video? I think relative to what you all do, there are three big worldview differences <laughs> with with the specs we build on top of. We do as little encoding and transcoding as possible these days in the WebRTC world. So we try to encode in real time as best we possibly can on each client. And then we try, and there are exceptions to this, but we try to just pass through that encoded video without touching the packets all the way through to all the other end users in the call. And there are complexities there like end-to-end encryption and bandwidth management that are really interesting and really fun from an engineering perspective. But basically... We try to do a quick one-pass encode and then send all those packets out and receive them and decode them with as little buffering as possible. So the first difference is we don't have access to much transcoding and that limits what we can do, but it also lets us do stuff in theory really fast. The second big difference is if we're not able to do UDP, we are unhappy. And TCP for us is a like a fallback case. And that's because if we can just fire and forget UDP packets the media will probably get there faster than if we have to set up and tear down TCP connections and sit on top of TCP retransmit algorithms. If we can't get a media packet through in the first go, it's probably not something we're going to try to do again unless it's a keyframe. And so UDP is the right choice. And then the third thing we can't do uh, that we would love to do and maybe in the future... Uh, We'll build a whole bunch more new internet infrastructure to handle, but we can't really rely on caching layers or CDNs or anything like that. So we have to, even though we build on top of UDP, we have to maintain a kind of stateful idea of the connection with every client in the call so that we can route the right packets to them as quickly and as efficiently as possible. So we have to kind of scale our calls with servers that kind of know about everybody on the call and are doing a certain amount of real-time routing that's a little bit smart. Um, So latency comes because we're buffering the media to encode it or decode it, or we're having to deal with packet loss, or our servers are having to route the packets. And when you add up the network transport and the encoding and a little bit of time on the servers, that's where you end up with the kind of 100 to 200 milliseconds that we usually 
are able to achieve and that we target for for end-to-end latency. So in terms of, I'm sorry, I'm not an expert on this in any way, shape, or form. So how much of a traffic that you like egress from me talking on my WebRTC call, how much of that traffic is going from me directly to you know, a PN network to the other people? And how much of it is going to, you know, a server somewhere and then being broadcast? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, so WebRTC was invented as a peer-to-peer media spec. And you still see that in the roots of kind of everything about WebRTC is that the assumption is that it's always peer-to-peer. To negotiate a peer-to-peer connection, though, is really complicated on the internet because everybody's behind firewalls and you know, has <laughs> NAT layers so between them and the internet. Um, and uh, we have to do a bunch of things and these are built into the WebRTC spec in a really actually pretty elegant way to try to get UDP packets from my computer to your computer. And we always try to do that in small calls. So in a one-on-one call, we always, we with our the, the choices we make on the daily platform, we're almost always trying to negotiate a peer-to-peer call initially. As you get to bigger calls, it becomes prohibitive to do peer-to-peer because you can't connect everybody in the call to everybody else and encode the video for everybody else. Right, I don't want to send my video to you know hundred people, right? <laughs> Potentially at you know five different bit rates, that would be <laughs> infeasible, I guess. That's right. Both the CPU on the client and the bandwidth available to and from each client can't do it. So, at a certain point in a call. In the WebRTC world, we generally switch over to routing media through a server, a media server. And the most common uh, way to scale is you send one upstream media track from each client to the server. And then the server multiplexes that out Mm. in real time to all the other clients. But you do get each track from everybody in the call downstream. So you still have a scaling challenge of how you send all the tracks out to everyone in a call and how the clients can deal with all those tracks. There's a couple of reasons we tend to do it that way. And uh, then there's a bunch of fallout from that in terms of user experience and engineering trade-offs. The reason you go one up and in down in the WebRTC world is to avoid the transcoding. Mm. And transcoding is hard to do fast and it's expensive from an infrastructure perspective. It takes a lot of CPU. It also, this is somewhat less important, but it's also true, it's really hard to do transcoding in real time at adaptive bit rates, at multiple adaptive bit rates. Mm. And dealing with real time in WebRTC is a lot about dealing with variable network conditions, Mm. both variable over time to and from the same client and variable across all sorts of different clients connected to a call. So one of the really fun things that got built into WebRTC in the last, really became usable in the last year, is called Simulcast. And so what our platform does, and a lot of other platforms do this now too, is we actually send three copies of the video up from each client. And we send a really low and a medium and a kind of reasonably high bit rate up at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then the media server peels off whichever layer, simulcast layer it's called, is best for each other client in the call and sends only one layer downstream. So that lets you do a lot of interesting things around dealing with network conditions that are variable and also customizing which track you're sending depending on the UX on the other end in a way that doesn't require transcoding on the server and doesn't require prohibitive amounts of CPU. That's right. Do you have to then 
like watch the streamer's connection and cut off the, the higher quality one if, it, if the connection drops too low? You do. You, you have to do send side bandwidth estimation from the server and try to make a good guess about what the right layer to send is what the max layer you can send is. And then also at the API or the application layer, you want developers to be able to say, I really only want the smallest layer. Please don't send me the highest layer for this other participant in the call because, for example, I know I want to preserve a bunch of bandwidth for a screen share that's also going on. Or I know I'm trying to render you know, 50 small tiles and I don't want contention on the network <laughs> because there's only going to be small amount of pixels per user anyway. So send me only the lowest level streams. So there's a bunch of control you can have over that, Mm -hmm. uh, but it does add to the complexity of like figuring out how you're going to route the packets. Is there a sweet spot going from, you know, the one-to-one use case and just direct peer-to-peer to to actually sending it through the server? Like there's a sweet spot as far as number of users where, I mean, I guess it's bandwidth constrained, right? But have you found like a number that's like at five users, we're definitely sending through the server versus one-to-one, it's peer-to-peer. That's such a great question, and your guess of five was really spot on, uh, because historically, (laughs) (laughs) we have switched from uh, peer-to-peer to to media server mode when the fifth person joins a call. Now, we have a ton of real-world data about what works well across all sorts of calls, and one funny thing is that's changed a lot in the last six months, and I, I think we may actually end up dropping that that number down quite a bit lower. We've seen lots more variability in ISP peering quality. And as more and more mobile users have become active WebRTC application uh, constituents, we've seen mobile networks have different dynamics. Like 4G networks have really different dynamics than like home ISPs, which have different dynamics than business networks. So it's a little bit of a if you're, if you're going to pick an average number, you're always kind of guessing a little bit. So one of the things I think we are now working on and other people are working on too is getting better at, in a call, deciding which mode we should be in and trying to seamlessly switch in a way that users never even perceive, hmm. which is super fun from an engineering perspective. You know, we have to like <laughs> start up streams without taking too much CPU or bandwidth. Then we have to crossfade between video and audio streams so that people oh don't my cut gosh. out. We're not all the way there yet, but we're almost there. Uh, we got a bunch of stuff we're going to release in September that uh, we we call smooth switching uh, between <laughs> peer to peer and SFU mode. Smooth with lots and lots of O's, and, and we're going to trademark. So I assume that a lot of this. I, I've got two questions here. So we've kind of been talking about what scaling one call to a larger number of call members looks like. There, I'd be interested to hear what the other side of that looks like, like instead just scaling a bunch of calls with a small number of members, is that all just signaling load or are there additional things there that you run into? Because I'm sure all of this kind of has uh, has exploded a little bit with the whole pandemic thing we've had going on. So I'm curious like where you're seeing folks beating down your door for those scale metrics. Is it just like a sheer number of calls or are you kind of really seeing people wanting to do like an 80-person real-time call, whatever the hell that looks like. We're seeing both. Um, we had a period in March and April where the number of calls we were hosting at peak periods grew by a factor of five or more You know, every week, <laughs> week on week. Um, and so we ended up just scrambling uh, to, 
add a bunch of infrastructure. And there's some publicly available stuff about what Zoom did during that period too, to add infrastructure. And, you know, if you're down in the weeds on this stuff like we are, it was really interesting to see that. It's not that hard to scale just in terms of number of calls. It's a pretty traditional infrastructure scaling challenge. The only complexity is that we can't rely on pretty much anybody else's infrastructure to help. So we can't rely on CDNs or, you know, other great technology that's been built out over the last 20 years to to scale HTTP traffic. Because it's all UDP and because it's all routed in this custom way, we scale by adding servers to our clusters effectively. And as you were saying, we do end up with bottlenecks on our own signaling infrastructure as well. We can scale that horizontally to some extent too, although you know, as with all infrastructure scaling challenges, at some point you have some big database somewhere that you have to figure out how to shard. Mm. But mostly we just add servers to our clusters. So we currently have clusters in seven regions running on AWS's network mostly. And we are in the middle of adding a bunch more clusters uh, in a bunch more regions. It turns out to be useful to put media servers as close as possible to users because of that speed of light ping time issue. Um, <laughs> So adding more geographic clusters is is a big priority for us right now. Longer term, it's super fun to think about what the internet infrastructure might look like as UDP media traffic becomes a bigger and bigger deal. That's, that's actually something I wanted to ask, actually. like, Is, is AWS suited for that use case? Is, is getting UDP traffic into the cloud, I remember, I guess, eight years ago now? First trying to put a lot of UDP traffic into AWS and that being very hit and miss. Has that improved? Is it the best platform to route that sort of traffic in? It's improved a lot and it's now more than good enough. It's not perfect and we find corner cases and end up talking to the AWS engineering support folks who have been really great. Mm. Uh, A lot of Zoom is on AWS as well. Mm. Uh, No, I bet that helps. (laughs) That helps a lot. But we do sometimes find things like instance types that are CPU inefficient for UDP heavy workloads, whereas they're really you know great for other workloads. Um, and then we either you know switch instance types or we talk to the AWS engineering support folks about it. It is easy for us to imagine the perfect infrastructure, um, <laughs> as, you can, as I'm sure it is for you as well. Um, and I, I do believe that there will be a set of CDN-like services eventually optimized for UDP media traffic, but that's a number of years away. You've got to feel like that sort of thing will hopefully transition to more edge compute style, right? Is that, a, is that a bit of a pipe dream at the moment? I think that's exactly right. Because media routing is pretty compute, it's not compute intensive, but there's compute that it's hard to factor out. Mm. So what we imagine is something like a micropop with a WebAssembly support baked in at a pretty deep level that lets us route UDP. I think that is not that hard to build. I think like a lot of things, it's hard to spec and get right and scale. Hmm. Sorry, I had pondering two more questions. Well, I, I don't know how to work it in, but I uh, I really want to know what stun and turn are. Because uh, <laughs> I got no idea. comes up every time someone talks about real-time video, though. So... Uh... What is stun and turn? Oh, sure. So stun and turn are are part of that peer-to-peer routing suite of technologies that are built into the WebRTC specification. Uh, stun is a server you can ask on the internet everything about what IP addresses might be usable to reach you. 
And Turn is a server out somewhere on the internet that you can route media through if we fail to establish a true peer-to-peer connection. So together, Stun, along with a protocol called ICE, lets us try a bunch of different internet addresses and port numbers with a bunch of different timings to try to punch holes through firewalls and network and address translation layers. And if we can't do that, Turn lets us agree on a server that uh, we can bounce media through. That's not really a media server because there's no smarts at all, but it just pretends to be the peer Mm. and relays the traffic. Thank you. That's brilliant answers. So many of my questions. I feel like somebody worked hard on those acronyms. And you know, the funny thing is I do this stuff every single day. And if you actually ask me right now to tell you what those acronyms are, I'm not sure I can get it right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm super interested in hearing what the next generation of codecs looks like for real-time video. Obviously, I think Cisco demonstrated, maybe it was WebEx, demonstrated a real-time AV wall encoding for real-time communication purposes. I think that was at... Big Apple video last year, I think it was. And obviously, I see more discussion of new codecs coming in to WebRTC. Like, I assume the codec will vary. It's just 99%, you know, H264 right now. But where's that going, do you think? Right now in WebRTC, it's 99%, probably not 99%, but it's a high percentage is VP8. And that's because of Google's influence on the implementation of WebRTC and Google's preference for VP8. We do now support, kind of everybody now supports both H.264 and VP8, but in Chrome, for example, the VP8 encoder pipeline is actually better than the H.264 encoder pipeline. In terms of visual quality or just faster? Uh, it's mostly better at being, being tied in at a more effective level to the bandwidth estimation and bandwidth adaptive layers. So you can, in Chrome, use H.264 and miss keyframes and end up with you know, video artifacts based on missed keyframes that in it, with H.264 that doesn't, doesn't happen with uh, VP8. So all of this stuff is always a moving target. And on Apple platforms, it's less true that H.264 is not as good as VP8. But if you're concerned about quality, generally you're using VP8 today. And you know that'll probably not be true next year, uh, but it's still true today. There was a big fight in the standards committee about codecs, and the eventual compromise was all standards-compliant WebRTC implementations now have to support both VP8 and H.264, which from a developer perspective is actually a great result. Like We love having access to both, and we can do things like if we know a call is between two iPhones, we can use H.264 because the battery life uh, implications of H.264 are way better compared to VP8 in a one-on-one call. So it's nice to have those two options. The next generation of codecs is going to be another fight because there's AV1 and VP9 and H.265. And they offer some really great advantages over the codecs we have now. But from our perspective, on the network, the only thing we care about is packet loss. And in codecs, the only thing we care about is CPU usage. Mm. And right now, CPU usage for the next generation codecs is prohibitive at anything above very small resolutions for real-time encoding. And the biggest single complaint we get from developers across all different use cases is, how do I reduce CPU usage of my calls? Wow! So we just tell people who ask us about next-generation codecs, 
definitely coming, definitely not coming anytime soon from a, you know, soon from a developer, like I'm trying to ship an app perspective. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. I, I for one, am, am shocked that codecs were a fight in a standards body. <laughs> <laughs> Never happened before. Shocked, I say. <laughs> cool. So I, I guess since some of this has been, you know, I, I think in some of the scaling conversations, it was, it sounds like there are, there's a lot of this that can be done just purely peer to peer and and coding on the clients. Um, so be curious, like what are your biggest expenses tied up in all of this? Is that running those stun and turn servers or um, you know your traditional infrastructure stuff? Like where does that stuff land? For peer to peer use cases, we end up paying for about twenty percent of the bandwidth because we have to route through our own turn servers. For larger calls, the combination of bandwidth and the sort of virtual instances uh, that host the calls ends up both contributing to the cost of, of maintaining the service. It's interesting for us to see in this year how much growth there's been in interest in larger calls. So we used to almost never get requests for calls with more than you know 25 or 30 people in them. And now a lot of our customers are people who are trying to build 50, 100, 500 person calls. What we think of as hybrid use cases. My nightmare. Yeah, so it's it's a little bit of an engineering nightmare. It's definitely a little bit of a user experience nightmare. But the kind of innovation of of what people are trying to do on the internet is super interesting. So like a great example is a fitness class where you want the instructor to have the ability to stream to 500 people, their camera, their mic, and their music track. You want the instructor to be able to see some subset of those people. Mm. And you want the people in the class to be able to see the people, the, their friends that they signed up for the class with. <laughs> um, so you're not routing every media stream to everybody in a 500-person call. Uh, that would be crazy. <laughs> but you want to be able to really flexibly route the media streams and mm. kind of turn them on and off at a moment's notice. That's something that uh, WebRTC is able to do from a core building blocks perspective, but it's actually pretty hard to implement from an API and infrastructure perspective and is mm. pushing the edges of what our platform can do. But we have enough customer pull for it that it's a big focus for us. Yeah, no, that's, that's super fascinating. It's, honestly, if you'd asked me eight, nine months ago, I'd, I'd never even thought of that exact use case. And I've heard that exact use case well, for two very specific use cases. One for, yes, the, the personal trainer fitness market, obviously. Huge disruption from COVID. Over the last eight months, you know, I've, I've heard this pitch probably six or seven times in the last five or six months. But then also this, this exact same pitch, but for live music, where people want to be able to watch a concert, but also see their friends. And then they want the artist who's performing to be able to see some of the audience as well, see some of the fans going wild, as well as when their favorite song gets played, right? Yeah, first time I heard that sort of use case, I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. And now it's just, yeah, every couple of weeks someone wants to do it. And the third one that's the same plumbing from our perspective is the virtual conference or virtual networking event mm. where you have a keynote speaker or a keynote group of presenters, like a, a panel, and then everyone attending is at a virtual table mm. where they can interact in real time with you know six or eight or ten people at the, the virtual table and also get the panel or the keynote. I did read a um, interesting blog post that either you or someone on your team wrote around your pricing. 
don't know if you'd be interested to add any more detail there, but I thought it was interesting that you guys were kind of taking a different stand on how you charge for the service. Whereas like other services charge for every like individual connection. I think it was the detail, like every one person to another one person like is adding to how you're charged versus like just the number of people on the call. I, know, I thought that was an interesting approach. And I don't know if, the, if you would want to add any technical details behind that. I think as a rule of thumb, if you can simplify how people pay for something, you can make it easier to support new use cases and experimentation and kind of the growth of of what we're all doing. So we tried to figure out how we could come up with the simplest possible pricing that also on some level reflected, you know, the cost of service so we could stay in business. Mm-hmm. And it, we, you know, we have a lot of numbers, obviously, about cost of service and bandwidth use for different kinds of calls. And it turned out to be possible just to charge based on being in a call. So, you know, if you're in a two-person call, it's the base price times two times the number of minutes. If you're in a hundred-person call, it's the base price times a hundred times the number of minutes. And that felt like a reasonable compromise for us between simplicity and and scaling of use cases that actually do cost us more to serve. And it is different from kind of our little subset of the industry. Historically, most people have thought about you know subscribed tracks or forwarded tracks, which is a more n times n minus one type pricing model. And I think that's partly been because bandwidth used to be more expensive. CPU used to be more expensive. So your variable costs were kind of, they could bite you more as the provider. As costs have come down with the infrastructure, and as I think we've gotten better at building kind of WebRTC native infrastructure in the cloud, I think it's possible to simplify the pricing and lower the pricing. And our assumption is that pricing is going to come down and simplify further over the next five years and better to be on the forefront of that rather than kind of trailing behind that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's that's awesome. This is in particular one of those areas where like you think about, you know, traditional online video versus like what we're talking about now, which is kind of like this new like real-time video. And like there are there are so many similarities, but like at the same time, like pricing is, for example, is one that's just or like cost structure is just one that's like feels so radically different. Like you know, uh, at a traditional video platform or real time streaming, so much of your cost is tied up in encoding, particularly if you don't have that many viewers. So like the real time is typically small number of viewers, but everybody's contributing, but like almost none of the cost is encoding because all that can be done on the client. So it's it's just fascinating. Yeah, that's right. Our users pay for the encoding, uh, but they don't. <laughs> you know, they don't pay for the kind of stateful server connection that we need directly. We pay for that. So you're totally right. The the cost structure moves around. I mean, compared to something like HLS in the WebRTC world, we're never going to be able to optimize for quality the same way an HLS stack is going to be able to, and we're never going to be able to optimize for cost quite as well as an HLS stack. Mm. And that's the trade-off of trying to get to that 200 millisecond or lower number. So, what other what other technology challenges have you run into with real time? Is this like, you know, we've talked a little bit about codec support, but are firewalls a big problem? Do you have to get around all those with like the stun and turn stuff we talked about earlier? Like, any other any other big things there? Firewalls and network infrastructure in general is something we worry a lot about. Firewalls in particular have gotten just massively more open uh, to real time media in the last couple of years. So we we rarely see firewalls that are a major issue anymore. And that's really nice. What hasn't completely improved is scaling on the client side for larger numbers of people in a call. 
So we, we've done a lot of work to try to understand exactly how to optimize for Chrome and Firefox and Safari and Electron. And our biggest single pain point is how do we combine the optimizations we're doing for variable network conditions and the optimizations we're doing for variable behavior on the client side in terms of kind of CPU and processing power. So like a, a fancy MacBook Pro running Chrome is a pretty different beast than an iPhone 7 running Safari 12. <laughs> and you know, we have to be cross-platform. So trying to manage like how many videos are being played out at a time, what the resolution of those videos are, is always a moving target for us. So we, we talked a little bit about scaling one call to a large number of members in that call. But what about the examples where you have a few people, like a, say a, a panel in a talk, and those then want to broadcast to a large number of people who don't want to be in the, they want to be passive viewers. So it's like a few to few broadcast. What, what does that infrastructure look like for y'all or workflow? That's an increasingly big use case for us. Uh, we have a lot of customers who really want to be able to do what you called few to few broadcast, which is a great term and not one we've used before, but we're going we're gonna to borrow it now. <laughs> and so the, the, the challenge is how do we have that kind of really great small call experience, but then in, you know, at relatively low latency, make that available to a much, much larger audience. And the answer today is a bridge from WebRTC to something like HLS. So we've tried to build that bridge so that our customers can use both our APIs and Mux, for example, or YouTube Live or Facebook Live. And that does end up requiring a couple of transcoding steps today. So we take the, the small call and on our servers, on our media servers that are routing the media packets, we run a, a compositing and encoding pipeline. So we decode all the media, we lay it out into a single frame and combine the audio tracks, run that through an RTMP out uh, end stage and send it to an RTP ingest URL provided by a customer. And that ends up working pretty well from a standards perspective. It's really disappointing from a core engineering perspective because we'd much rather, we know you, for example, at Mux are going <laughs> to take that RTMP and you're going to do a much better job of <laughs> transcoding it. Um, so we'd really love to figure out how to hand off the WebRTC tracks in a much lower level way to people who are experts at HLS and have a great HLS technology stack. But that remains a little bit of a pipe dream today. Fascinating. This has been amazing, Quinn. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah. So illuminating. This is just a world <laughs> I know so little about. It's just so cool. I know. I feel like I'm, I use it all the time and we, we hear about it all the time. But really digging in is kind of one of those things that, yeah, it's just a different world. Just, yeah, just how different the technology is from you know, what you're working with on, this, on the more traditional HTTP streaming side of things. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, never have I been more happy to use HLS and to have HTTP as my fundamental protocol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like same, same, but completely different. So thanks again, everyone, for joining. Thank you so much, Quinla, for this illuminating conversation. This was this was really great. Just a reminder, 2020.tomux.com around tickets, donation matching if you want to give. And also, we just wanted to explicitly call out a request for topics. If, if you have something you want to talk about, get in touch. If you have something you want to hear about, get in touch. And we can figure out who we can find that might be able to chat about whatever that thing you have that burning desire to learn about is. How does one get in touch? At Demuxed on Twitter. If you just ping 
Hephil or MMCC on the video dev Slack, video-dev.org. If you email info at demux.com. Yeah, we can definitely uh, do that. <laughs> we need like we need to set up like a, a wolf somewhere. <laughs> but anyway, thanks again, Quindla. This was a fantastic call. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That's all we have for today. But as always, we'd love to hear what you thought, even if you disagree. So please reach out on Twitter at Demuxed. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 